0: Hello and welcome to the Mindful Family Business. My name is Ross Hayworth and I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Martin Stepek. In each episode, we will be exploring and learning about the ancient teachings of mindfulness and how we can apply these to situations within our family business. We are also offering access to a program that takes what we speak about and applies it to your own family business. More details of that at the end of the show. But for now, take a breath, relax relax and enjoy the show. Hello Martin, how are you today?
1: Hi Russ, I'm fine and although this will sound so repetitive, it's another beautiful day here in Scotland. I can't believe it. Um it's stunning so makes life all the better. But it's even good when it rains here.
0: Absolutely. And we were talking before um we hit record about the um the the joy of having issues around the sun coming in the window and, and blinding us and various other things and uh the the pleasure that that can bring although it can be a bit awkward. Uh, on video calls and the like.
1: Yep, better than hailstones hammering against the window, which we sometimes get.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. Um, So on today's show, we're going to be looking at kind of bringing the uh, summary of what we've covered already in the previous shows, uh, and in particular, looking at the fourth noble truth. But before, as I say, we get to that, could you provide us with a summary of the three we've already covered? And I think it's important to reiterate in terms of this, the noble truths that there are, that's a a kind of poor translation of what it is. These are the truths that if we understand these will ennoble us uh, and um, allow us to live uh, a more mindful um, life. So uh, over to you in terms of providing us with a summary of where we are today, and then we can dig in a little bit more on Uh, the fourth of those uh, Four Noble Truths.
1: Sure. So this is the the bridge where the Buddha taught that these are the things you need to know in order to break free from the problems that that we self-cause in our mind primarily. And then these are the things that you need to do to get free. So one is, and that is the first, when we get to the, Eightfold path, the first of that path, is called right understanding or right view. So it's how we see the world. And that's what we've been exploring these first three weeks, that what the Buddha said is essentially common sense if we sit and look at it, and very modern neuroscience, which is the beauty of this this tradition, is it's, it's ancient and it's right up to date with the science and the psychology, which is that all human beings have dissatisfaction. All human beings have frustration. All human beings sometimes suffer grievously and painfully. And we don't have sustained peace of mind, whether through restlessness, through ambition, or through difficulties happening. We And what he's saying initially is this is innate. This is part of us. Don't think you can wish it away. So you start from that foundation of life brings frustrations and dissatisfactions. That's the first ennobling truth, if you like. The second one is about the cause of it. So we would now just say it's in the genes. That's what it is. And what's in the genes that causes us to be frustrated, irritated, annoyed? Well, actually, it's wants and dislikes. We, if you take the situation with climate change, nobody wants the problem of climate change. So it's something we want rid of. And what do we want instead? A stable climate again, please. And the fact that we don't have these things, we have something we don't like, annoys us or brings us down. The fact that we have something we don't like, does that. This fact that we don't have something we do want causes it as well. So we're constantly in this position where it's kind of desire, what he called thirst. We have a thirst for life to be a certain way. You know, whether it's a new car, but you can't quite afford it just now. You know, and they're like, oh, I wish I could. So that's the, the cause of our dissatisfaction. It's in the genes and it's about, want, 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 or I don't like, I don't like, I don't like. The third truth is we can learn to overcome this. We can learn to supersede our desires and our dislikes. But then what we're going to explore today is the fourth is you have to do something to get there. You know, it just doesn't come by magic. You don't wake up one morning and think, well, great, I no longer have any great desires. I no longer have any great dislikes. So that's where I'm looking at just now the fourth truth that ennobles people is the steps you have to take, the work you have to do to get to that quality of mind. And it's not that dissimilar to physical fitness and health. We all know that There's certain foods we should be eating. There's certain foods we should not be eating as much of. There's certain exercise we should do. So these are, if you like, the bodily equivalent of the eightfold path. Do this, do that, do that. Your body will be healthy. But you have to do it. It's not enough to know that that's what you should do.
0: Yeah, and I think... um part of that again using the physical analogy as well as it's work that you have to do rather than work somebody else can do on your behalf and I very often use the analogy of a a personal trainer can't do the press-ups for you or if they do they get the results whereas you don't and I guess that's what we're saying in terms of the actions that need to be taken it's down to us as individuals to take those and to work on them and to continue to work on them in order to get to the point where we're striving to to get to.
1: Yep, and you're almost literally word for word repeating what the Buddha said, you know, two and a half thousand years ago. He says he can only teach the way. Mm -hmm. You have to do the work, and he called it that. You have to do the work. Um, And he also said this is against the tide, the mind does not naturally go in this direction. Mm-hmm. The, the tide naturally for the mind is to have wants, to have dislikes, and call therefore causing all our frustration or lack of peace of mind. So it's, it's, it's not just a bit of work. It's constant and quite hard work to do it. But the rewards are, are, are lovely
0: um mm. I, I there's a i'm listening to a new book so part of my i go for a walk and i listen to an audio book on my walk so that it's kind of i, I class that as multitasking because i'm i'm doing two things at, at once and the, the i'm paraphrasing massively because it, it was a big long quote in this book but uh, it effectively said the mind is most effective when it is in the present rather than either being held in the past or being held in the future and again it resonates in terms of what we're talking about with mindfulness is being in the present and having a sense of clarity I guess in our own minds Um, and part of what I wanted to explore with you obviously we're looking at mindfulness and understanding the foundations of it and the teachings from um, the, the time when, when the Buddha um, sort of uh, cemented his, his thoughts around this. That, But we're doing that through the lens of family business. And so I wonder whether we can sort of delve into what a mindful family business might look like, what it might feel like. And I know there's going to be nuances and everyone's different. But, but the, the concept, I, I get quite excited by the thought of the, the mindful family business and how like the great it could do in the world beyond what family businesses do already. But could, could you kind of, again, take us a, a bit deeper in terms of what that might look like if this is a, an appropriate time to do so?
1: Well, absolutely. The classic initial view is to look at the opposite what is a mindless family business without the pejorative sense of that word? Mm -hmm. What is a reactive, ordinary family business? Now, that depends on the people in it. And the people in it will vary from family to family. Um, Some people are lucky with the genes, and some people draw short straws. You know, some families... Draw, you know there's one member of the family who's always argumentative you know there's one who just wants to do their own thing there's another one who wants to be the top all the time and so you have to sort of generalize to a degree but nobody's perfect and that means that someone at some point will irritate someone else in the family or meet or have a view about the future of the business that another member of the family just genuinely, totally disagrees with. And in a non-mindful family business, by and large, there's a degree of frustration about that. There's also a degree of not raising issues because you don't like conflict within the family, so you suppress views and hopes and wishes and desires. And these are all classic examples of the first. Truth, is suffering, it's frustrating, it's irritating. Now, what mindfulness does is over time, it slowly but surely allows you to notice what your mind is up to. Assess in the moment. So this is the primary importance of the, the present moment. Assess as in real time what's going on in your mind and recognizing when it's not helpful. And when it's not helpful, to allow that to fizzle out or take your mind to something more beneficial for everybody around you. And from there, then, your irritation diminishes and you start to, your mind starts to clear. It's the only way I can describe it. Over time, you start to have more moments of true lucidity, clarity, clear thinking, very objective, logical, but also compassionate state of mind instead of this constant ebb and flow of wants and dislikes and annoyances and frustrations and me, 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 me coming through. So you start to see things more clearly and you start to care more about the bigger picture, not just your own situation. And you feel more calm and peaceful. So if you take those three aspects, so it's a more kind of altruistic or Universal view, if you like, of a, of a situ of any situation, a view that is a, a mind that is clear in its perception and in discussions, and a mind that doesn't get rattled or angry, so it's staying at a very calm, peaceful level. Now, if everybody in, even if one person in the family business who previously wasn't like that starts to be like that then it positively affects the atmosphere in the group. It also positively affects the likely outcome of conversations in the group because there'll be more wiser thinking, more reflective thinking, more consideration of everybody involved, and more tolerance of difference. Now, if you then picture a scenario where everybody's improving in that regard, then the way I do, if I take it out from a family business context just now and just put it straight into a family context, you know, if you have, as I once had um, a teenage daughter, my daughter's now 27, but when she was 14 or 15, she'd come home and she would just chuck away the school bag there, one shoe goes off, throws it over there, another one. So in other words, what was a, Happy, peaceful, tidy house is now untidy, which leads to the lack of happiness and the lack of peace because parents come in and say, oh, for goodness sake, can you not just tidy your room? Boom. And then because she's not 10 anymore, she doesn't just acquiesce to this. She says, it's my room. I can do whatever I want with it. And that then causes a row, frustration, frustration, real irritation, anger, and a mood that you could cut with a knife. So you imagine that now not happening because one or both parties sense their anger, sense their irritation, and just not suppress it. They'll say, hey, this isn't worth an argument. It's just a wee thing. Let it go and say, hi, lovely to see you. How was school? Give me a cuddle. Do you want a cup of tea? Boom. Now, you imagine that would happen twice a week and now it's not happening twice a week. That's 104 arguments aroused not happening in a year. In a decade, that's 1,000. Now, you then start applying that logic and that shift into a family business context and you're talking about 1,000 arguments not happening. A thousand tolerances happening, a thousand give and takes happening, a thousand clear perspectives happening. So a thousand insights maybe happening about what's best for the business, what's best for each individual. And you have this light-hearted, there's a lightness about mindfulness that because your mind is clear and because you are feeling calm and peaceful, you don't get so fraught. By issues that would otherwise have stressed you, so it's quite a nice culture to be in. It's it's helpful. It's it's cheery. It's humorous. It's you know, there's, nobody's getting too fussed about certain things. But you're focused. You're focused on what's right for the business, and you're focused on what's right for each other. That's the difference. So you know, it's not some kind of fake wishy washy shangri that you're that you're, you're envisaging. But it moves in that direction. It moves in the direction of better thinking, which is obviously always good for a business, but also more considerate perspective. And the feel is relaxed. Mm. It's relaxed efficiency. That's what we describe as effectiveness more than efficiency.
0: Mm -hmm. And it reminds me um, of the stories we hear about the... um, Olympic cycling teams and the very small changes that were made over time that led to an accumulation of changes that led to us the the British team becoming exceptionally successful and initially you might not notice that there's one or two less disagreements or fewer disagreements happening uh, each week but over time the cumulative impact on that on the, the relationships the family as a whole the business as a whole the culture within that business the cumulative impact of having the um the situation or environment that you you described so brilliantly there is huge as well but it, it might not be something that you think like you were saying boom right, I'm now mindful of done kind of everyone's skipping down the road together and it's you know every, everything's Fantastic! It is about doing the work. It's about developing um, a, a mindful state within the the family, but starting with yourself first. I'm assuming that's the it's the same yep. as the oxygen mask analogy. In, in in you know you put your oxygen mask on first, um, and over time the cumulative impact can be um, substantial. I, I wonder as well in terms of where. Certainly in more recent times, I've seen the use of the word purpose more and more. And uh, lots of organizations are coming out and going, we're purpose-driven. And if I was to have a cynical hat on, some of it I might think, well, that's good because of the, the marketing side of that. But but in terms of true purpose and understanding purpose from a family perspective again would you say that being mindful allows you to have greater clarity around that in which case you can communicate it better in which case you can get more people to buy into it in which case it becomes something that am I oversimplifying it too much by saying if we were you know had much more um, uh, of that clarity that, that the world would be a better place
1: no I don't think you're oversimplifying it I'll come back to that in a second, just stepping back to the, the change. Um, this is moment by moment change. That's, that's what mindfulness is. And there's a fabulous phrase in the ancient sort of um, original Indian texts, which says that in terms of how people become fraught or how people become clear-minded and calm. And it's talking about buckets when it's drop by drop a bucket fills and drop by drop a leaky bucket empties. So the idea is, you know, getting to get rid of all the junk and the hurtful and harmful stuff in your mind. It's You want a wee hole in the bucket and just to let it sip out, seep out moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day, over years, and it will empty. Meanwhile, if you keep doing the right work of your mind, the bucket of clarity, the bucket of calmness, the bucket of clear, positive, effective thinking will fill. So that's that analogy. I've always loved that analogy. Uh-huh. Um, I'm glad buckets have been invented when he was yeah. doing his teaching. <laughs> but, but as to purpose, it's, I'm, I'm not... Well, I'm maybe not quite as cynical as, as, as you're saying, but possibly I am. Um, I'm not sure on that one. But one thing, you know, and this is classic mindfulness just coming up here, is everyone has a purpose. Everyone has purpose. Every organisation has purpose. They might just not call it that. They might not just know about it. It might be unconscious. But, you know, you you don't get up and clean your teeth purposeless, you know, you do it to keep your teeth clean. You know, you don't eat food without a purpose. You eat food to fill a hunger and to have the energy to go on the day. You don't sort of pat your cat, you know, to without a purpose, it's because you want to show them you care, and so on and so on. And a business primary purpose is to at least make enough money not to go bust, you know, and to give the owners income. So there's purpose in everything. But what we're talking about there is this ethical purpose, or higher purpose, or moral purpose, or social purpose, and it's it's a good thing. Obviously, it's a good thing if all the entities, whether individuals or organisations, are trying their best to help society, um, or nature, or the planet um, m- more diligently and more effectively than they were previously. That kind of goes without saying. The problem with how it is utilised in many big organisations in particular is, is a cynical marketing whitewashing arrangement, which is basically that um, these acronyms are now there c s r followed by e s g we have to put them in our annual reports and we have to tick a lot of boxes and okay guys let's hire somebody who's good at ticking boxes not let's sit down and discuss the philosophy of why we exist i e purpose it's it's shallow and even worse than shallow it's sometimes deliberately misleading and and i have to work hard at not being angry at that kind of thing. You know. Um you know there there are so there's so much that needs improved in our societies, in our cultures. There's so much that needs protected in our planet. There's so much that needs repaired for the damage that we've unwittingly done and sometimes um carelessly and um, uncaringly done. Um, that we all need to be kind of moving in the right direction in this way. And I think that culturally has been a big shift, has been more and more, especially, you know, if you think about family businesses, next generation grew up learning this at school, you know, learning about environmental issues, learning about climate change, learning about biodiversity loss, and learning also about poverty and the various forms of poverty and inequalities that exist. Um, And so there is a shift that's coming what mindfulness helps us do is notice. I mean, that's what it is. It's noticing. But it's noticing your own prejudices. It's noticing your own conflicts, mental conflicts between what you'd maybe like to do but what you think the business needs. Um, if, if you go back in time, the, the classic criminal negligence and activity was probably the tobacco industry, who learned and knew about the cancer-giving effects of smoking and hid it for decades, letting millions of people die. Why? Because they had a business to run and profit to get. Now, that is, in my view, equivalent to mass murder. Um, Now, how do you get out of that? You have to think clearly, and you have to look clearly at your prejudices, which is, I'm a director of a company. My job is to maximize income. Versus, I'm a human being. I'm alive. All these other people are alive as well. Oh, the products we make will kill them. And. What mindfulness does is is twofold. It helps you see clearly where you are. It steps you back a lot from the sort of enmeshment that you usually have in a business. You're too close to it to see a true perspective. Mindfulness helps bring that perspective, but it also brings an ethical view because when you notice what's going on clearly and increasingly without skewed views, what you see is that life is a very precious thing. It's fragile. People lose lives. Animals lose lose lives. Trees lose lives. You know, plants lose lose lives, and all of them are quite astonishing creations of evolution. And all else being equal, and this is five hundred BC teaching as well is try not to harm anything that lives. And then you realise, well, it's impossible not to harm anything that lives because you need to kill something to eat, whether that's a plant or, or animal. So the mindfulness then helps you see clearly those conundrums and trying to say, well, what is the balance? What is the best we can do? What's the optimum way we can work? And that goes maybe as simple as, you know, we we used to just get uh, one-use plastic for our packaging. Now we'll get reuse. And that is a minor shift, but it helps. So, and that's where what we now call purpose, you know, purpose-driven businesses. The purpose should always be to protect ourselves and to make our life as, fulfilling and rewarding, as enjoyable as possible. That should be understood. We're not talking about self-sacrifice. We're not talking about martyrdom for a cause. And it's right to take care of yourself, and it's right there to take care of the people closest to you. But then you have this view that you say, if at all possible, let's do less harm in the daily work of our business. And even better, if possible, you say, let's try and do something nurturing, protective or good as the core purpose of our existence as a, as a business. Um, but it's not hard at times. I mean, in our family business, um, which was electrical retail and travel agencies, um, the we once found out that some of the big um, manufacturers of televisions videos or whatever. Um, it was rumored that they were using prison labor to do parts and that I was a member of Amnesty International and you're thinking does, does that sit squarely with my views? I mean I was a member of Amnesty International because my dad had been put into a labor camp and forced to work as a slave labor, you know so it was personal. And we had discussions and we found out the reality of it and we we made adjustments um, to it. So, but we were still selling thousands upon thousands upon thousands of consumer goods at a time when actually what should have been happening is saying to people, don't buy new stuff if the stuff that you've got already works okay. You know, it's so. These are contradictions within the business, within one's ethics. And if we had stopped marketing, and I was in charge of marketing, I was saying to people every day on television, you know, buy a new washing machine, buy a new washing machine. Doesn't matter if the old one is still working, buy this nice new one. Why? Because it's shinier, you know, it's whiter, it's, you know, it's got 23 cycle programs you'll never use. You know, so. You know, I I was part of that, but if I had stopped doing that, and this is where the mindfulness clicked in, if I had stopped doing that, I would have had to lay off people I'd known for 20, 30 years, because we wouldn't have had the sales. So we have to also understand that we are built into a system that has destructive elements in it as well as constructive elements in it, and so we have to work within those realities, but what our mind should be doing is we should do as little harm as possible within those parameters. And if we do have bigger influence, we should use that influence to change the parameters and the perspectives of, of our industry or of the economy.
0: Yeah, and, and I think um, sometimes uh, p- particularly um, I, I've spoken to many businesses who have gone through a process of looking at their impact on the environment and and are making changes to the way in which their business operates to become more sustainable. We've used the the phrase so the ESG side the the sustainability um, element of that. One of the key messages that came across in that and I think it's, it's echoed in terms of Um, taking a mindful approach to to running a business is that that doesn't have to be at the expense of profit. It's not saying that, you know, a mindful business can't make money or a sustainable business can't make money because the fundamental of the business element is that it needs to make money in order to support livelihoods initially of those that set it up. But if it grows to a size where it supports either other family members or other families, it needs to be something that's able to to do that and that doesn't mean it's at the expense of being mindful so if we look at it in in the opposite lens as well i think that's what comes across in what you're saying is it's not we're not saying that this is at the expense of the sort of good metrics that business can be measured upon but by looking at it through the lens of what impact are we having how can we be more mindful about it how can we you know, make changes to, to, to do good with what we're doing, but doesn't mean that that's, you know, we can do that for a year and then the business goes pop because you end up losing the the, the profit.
1: Yeah, so it's, it's, it is. It's about clear, calm, considerate thinking. Always about that. And those combinations mean that you look at the whole picture and you make the best decision you can within those com- competing wants and needs. So in our case, you know, we three hundred and fifty employees. If we did everything perfect in terms of the environment, etc., 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 we could possibly have been out of business. And so to help. Some living things you would have to hurt 350 living things, all of whom had families, so you're probably talking about over a thousand people.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's kind of crazy to, to do that, to let to hurt a thousand people that you know for a wider cause that you don't really know. That's where we should have mindful governments who are able to say, right, okay, people have to work within the realities of business and work within the realities of the economy, but we as government are charged with making sure that the economy overall is causing less harm and doing more good. So we have to accept governmental changes that might impact on us in the business but with a reality reality that that's actually helping the bigger picture so it's about knowing what you can and should do clearly it's not jumping on a bandwagon it's not pretending and but it's also not keeping everything the same for your own greed
0: Mm.
1: you know there's things we can do that maybe have a relatively minor impact on our own wealth or our own income, but is has a greater good. And that's a, a decision that requires thought and it requires discussion, especially if it's owners of the business. Um, but, I mean, we did this all the time at Stepik in our family business, because my dad was Polish, I mean, we funded Glasgow University's Slavonic Studies when it was going to close. And that cost, I can't, I can't remember now, something like 50 grand, mm-hmm. 50 grand a year, something like that. Um, and we were getting no reward for that, and we had a family policy at that time, as we said, we don't publicise any good that we do. That's mm-hmm. um, a private family matter, which is quite common in family businesses. Um, but We never got that stuff back, Um, and we just accepted it. And I think that's one of the great things about a good family business is that they'll try to do good because they believe that they should try to do good or they believe in the help that they're giving, and they're not doing it for a marketing purpose. And we did the Mm -hmm. same when martial law was declared in Poland. Um, We delivered an annual lecture at Strathclyde University on what was actually going on in Poland. Um, And that was a pivotal time in that country's history, and it led to the fall of communism. And there's these annual lectures that were showing we in the West, what was actually going on in a country that was not allowing um, proper reporting.
0: Um, Yeah, and I think one of the other points that I want to, I think would be very useful to to cover, kind of aligned to the theme that we've been talking about today in terms of what it feels like and looks like for, for a mindful family business, but also highlighting the fact that it's it's down to us as individuals to take this on. At, at some point in your life, you discovered mindfulness for the first time and you've then gone on a, a journey to where you are now a number of years later having you know delved very deeply into to mindfulness and, and dedicated an awful lot of your your time and, and your headspace to mindfulness C- can you again sort of share your experience of is there a time where you do wake up and feel or oh, i feel lighter i feel i feel that clarity or is it through the practices that you've developed that work for you that mean you can bring yourself to to that because again if someone so someone like me for example who is relatively new to what we're talking here around the depth of of mindfulness away from the kind of just the practices and the breathing exercises and that side it's it's an exciting prospect to achieve the clarity and to have that clearness of mind and the way in which to deal with whatever life's going to throw at us. Um, But it it can also seem a little intimidating to go, well, how do I, how will I know when I get there kind of thing? And I I think it'd be great to hear from you in terms of your experience. And again, I know it's individual to you and and everyone's would be different, but to kind of share that side of it as well, because um, I think that that would be very interesting.
1: Uh, Thanks. Uh, I'm laughing deeply inside here. I am. Way, way, way imperfect. Um, <clears throat> but to your point, I mean, I first grabbed onto mindfulness because I was so stressed working in the family business with my siblings who I love dearly. But I was one of 10 and um, all married. So there were 20 opinions every day. And so therefore, there's going to be different decisions. And so I found that stressful. So I f- just eventually... I cut a long story short, found mindfulness and found that it relieved my stress. So that was, that's that's the public view of mindfulness. And it was great to have stress relieved when you've got stress is a wonderful thing. But it was, so the reason I mentioned that is that if you imagine all of humanity, everyone is somewhere on a spectrum right now from being utterly despairing, maybe suicidal or completely filled with rage and hatred about somebody, all the way to possibly, I've never really met them, but incredibly saintly, perfectly happy people. You know, think the Dalai Lama or Gandhi or somebody like that, you know, that that kind of, so we're all somewhere on that line. And... How we got there, in a sense, doesn't matter, but it's only genes and experiences. That's the only reason we've got to be on on that line. <clears throat> now, if you start practicing mindfulness, so, for example, where I was, was on the what I'd call the left-hand side. The I'm feeling stressed. I'm a nice guy, but I'm not happy. I'm really knackered when I get home from work you know i love my family but i just wish i could get away from them for a, you know, day etc and the mindfulness took me from that to a less stressed position and ultimately to a position where i was awake past the halfway point and i'm starting to feel better than neutral quite happy when you continue doing that the, the work of mindfulness the practices of mindfulness the noticing then you don't have to aim for anything it will take you along a route. It's a bit like if you, and forgive the parochial nature of this, but if you go on the <clears throat> train from Hamilton Central and you go on the left-hand platform as you go on, you don't need to know you're going to Glasgow or Baloch or Loch Lomond is. You just go on the next train and it will take you there. This this is what's called um, aimlessness in um, in Zen, is just do the practice and the results will take care of themselves. You will get clarity. You'll get insights. You'll get greater perspective on a whole range of things. But the results come in two ways. And it's, it's very interesting. And again, the different schools of Buddhism emphasize one over the other. In Zen, especially in Japanese Zen, it's called a moment of Satori. And Satori means a momentary insight. A momentary feeling of being completely enlighten, enlightened. That, that's a poor word for it. You just feel happy, content, and everyone's fine. Now, that can last half a second. It can last a couple of minutes, but it eventually goes. So it's a temporary, woo, feeling. You know, you can be walking. I mean, I've done it loads of times now. You, you're walking in the woods, and you turn the corner, and there's a, a, a ray of light going through the trees, and it's just this beautiful combination of light and shade and you just think oh that's gorgeous boom that's a moment that in ordinary walks I my mind would have been too busy thinking about other things to possibly even see consciously that beauty and if I could see it consciously my mind would be so fixated on something else that I wouldn't have got the impact of it so the clarity gives the impact in the moment. But the big prize to me is not the wow moments. The big prize is the, oh, i have feeling peaceful, and I've been feeling peaceful by and large for the last three years. Whoa, this is a good space to be in. And that's true. I mean, I mean I've mean, i mentioned you know before in many conversations with you, Ross, that I, mean, I lost my parents just under 10 years ago after a really terrible year for both of them, and they died three weeks apart. I was aware that my two children were losing both their grandparents. I was losing my parents. Then fast forward five or six years, I lost my brother to cancer, age 57. Then six months later, I lost my sister to cancer, age 67. And I have lost four aunts and uncles that I loved in the last four years. So this has been a, oh, not very good part of the the journey, if you like. But what I've found is I had peace through all that. I would notice that even while grieving that something inside me, and it felt like a big block of concrete inside my rib cage. And it's it's almost like a physical thing inside my rib cage down to about my stomach. And it was peace. It didn't move. It didn't get shifted despite all the surface stuff that was going on. And it's an amazing thing to have because it's not, wishy-washy or peace man sort of hippie stuff, this is like a really powerful, resilient tool that helps you through very difficult times and makes you able to help the other people who are going through these things because all my brothers and sisters, obviously, were losing brothers and sisters, uncles, aunts and parents as well and 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 my children. Um, and it's it's hard to describe but That's what it feels like you are. There's a great poem um, by um, Thich Nhat Hanh, a great Vietnamese Buddhist monk. He says, um, "I I am here, I have arrived in the here and the now. I am solid, I am free, in the infinite I dwell. Now, the phrase, I am solid, is the bit I wanted to pull out there. I am solid. Now, he's a guy who has seen his family sort of burned to death in villages and sort of his his Vietnamese colleagues and friends murdered and, you know, a country completely devastated by war. And he's sitting there saying, I am solid, I am free, you know. In other words, that stuff doesn't get to me. I'm beyond that. I am not affected by that. and It's an amazing thing to to experience. And that's been there more than a decade, you know, Um, And I take no kind of pride in it. It's not me. I just found a practice and I did the practice and it it results. Um, And I don't know where it goes. I've always been interested sort of intellectually in the science of this. You know, I mentioned this spectrum where, you know, we know the worst end. You know you can't get worse than wanting to take your own life or somebody else's life and want to kill everybody or all humanity. But how happy can you get? How good can you get? You know, we don't have a description for how positive, constructive, creative, inventive, loving a human being can be. But what we do know is you can go in that direction. And that'll do me. And if I get run over by the bus tomorrow, that's all right. You know, if I get another 20 years and realise, oh, it actually gets better than this, that's also all right. But you become kind of indifferent to that side of it. And you just, because you're at peace, you're happy. And it doesn't really matter if it all ends. And it doesn't matter if it continues. I hope that's not too obscure.
0: No, it, it's it's framed it brilliantly for me. And I think the key to it as well, firstly, if you were to get hit by the proverbial bus tomorrow, it might ruin our scheduling in terms of the, the <laughs> podcasting. But that aside... You could um, interview the bus or the bus driver. <laughs> that, that aside, I think the key around that is that it's, you, you, I think you refer to it as a tool and with any tool, if you don't use it, then it, or if you don't sort of maintain it, if you don't, don't look after it, then it's something that can become a a knife as an example. If you don't sharpen the knife, it doesn't cut as well. And so the, the practices, the mindful practices that you've developed over time that work for you is what keeps that tool sharp for you. And as well as perhaps, encouraging people um, if we can do so via what we're doing with these podcasts to explore mindfulness and explore their own uh, kind of mind in that way is to also encourage them to continue to develop that and to practice to to continue with the mindfulness practices in order to let's all try and get to that happy end I mean what a what a world that would be if you know there's enough of us shifting towards that and then as you say it, it will it will make a difference somewhere along the line.
1: Yeah, I mean, we don't know as a species or as societies where everybody is on that spectrum, but we do know and have been in I've taught mindfulness in virtually all the prisons in Scotland, including the most high secure ones, to some of the most notorious um, people in prisons. Um, so we know that there are people at the dark side of human human. Behavior and we know that there are people on good side. and We know that there are other people who flip from one thing to another. Um, you know, just in, in a moment you can be really angry and selfish, and another moment you can be kind. So we've got we know this. There and all mindfulness helps us do is with the work is it moves us along in that direction. And that direction, apart from the sort of wonderful sort of peace bit and clarity, it's just clear thinking and more compassionate perspective. You know, that's as simple as it is. Now, those are amazingly practical tools. I mean, nobody would argue that you'd be better off without clearer thinking. Mm -hmm. You'd be better off if you didn't really consider the other people in a situation. (laughs) So it's it's logical, it's very logical, and it's also, you know, this is all evidence-based. We see this from the neuroscience, we see this from the, the psychological studies. We're just actually, and this is what the Buddha two and a half thousand years ago said, he he called it vipassana, you gain insights, you gain insights about life, which makes you better at living life. And it's also bhavana, bhavana means mental cultivation. That's what we badly translated as meditation. Uh-huh. You're trying to deliberately cultivate your mind. Now, nobody would say, well, oh, it's a bad idea to cultivate your mind. Well, oh, let's dumb down our mind. That'd be a good idea for humanity. Yeah. yeah. So, so, so if we all move in that direction, by and large, all else being equal, knowing that nature and other stuff also plays a huge role that we can't control, but all else being equal, we will become a better species, a happier species, a more considerate species, and a wiser species with regard to the fact that we live in a finite planet and all that goes with that.
0: Mm. Fantastic. And I think that is a, a extremely positive note to end um, this particular discussion on. Um, and I look forward to uh, discussing more around the Eightfold Path on our next uh, conversation. But um, thank you again for, for today's insights. It's been uh, fantastic.
1: My pleasure. Thank you.
0: It is our firm belief that it is healthy for your business, your family as a whole and each individual involved to learn how to develop a fresh, more objective perspective of the situation each of you is in so that clearer aims, hopes and visions can be explored together in a positive, respectful and constructive manner. Martin and I have created the Mindful Family Business Program to help you with this. If you'd like to find out more about this, please head to familybusinesspartnership.com forward slash mindful for more information, or you can email me russ at familybusinesspartnership.com. We really hope you've enjoyed the show, and if you have, please feel free to share it with your family, and you can even leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Until next time, take care.